0: Reading from Ephesians 5, starting at verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands In everything, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him.
1: A couple of weeks ago the 2016 census data was released and it was really interesting the way that the media focused in on some of the results. There seemed to be a particular fascination in the media around how many Australians identify with a religion and even before the census you could tell that this was a storyline that some people are really interested in. So at the shops near me uh, you might have seen some of these there was a sign that said not religious anymore, mark no religion on the 2016 census. If the sign had said, not religious, mark no religion, that would be a kind of helpful public service announcement. But instead, the people who paid money to advertise like this were very subtly suggesting a storyline, not religious anymore. And this is the storyline that the media seems to be fascinated by at the moment. Now, I reckon their fascination with this sort of story is is itself fascinating. I keep wondering why they care so much. And I find it fascinating the way that all sorts of assumptions are are sort of made along the way and confidently suggested for why people are losing their religion. Like in one article uh, that I read from the ABC, a journalist wrote, as education levels have increased identification with religion has decreased and this was confidently stated like it's the most obvious thing in the world but it's a bit of a a bizarre statement really and all sorts of assumptions are actually smuggled in there. I mean think about what it could have said as education levels have increased so have obesity levels and we'd all say what really how are those two connected? And so we should, it would be a completely misleading thing to say. Or it could have said, as people identifying with the religion decreases, obesity rates have increased and we'd all say, what a ridiculous thing to write. But for some reason, we more readily accept the storyline about religion that the media creates. And if you get down to what that basic storyline is that's being implied sometimes in the media like this, but very often by prominent atheists, the storyline goes that it's uneducated to believe in God. At least, to believe in God, as he's understood in organised religion, is to indulge in a bit of foolishness. In fact, one atheist organisation calls themselves the Brights. And whether they mean to imply it or not, what they're implying is that to believe in God is not bright. Now, there's no truth to this storyline, of course, and in fact, it's pretty poor logic and, ironically, in one sense, it's kind of an uneducated viewpoint. A quick look around reveals that there are, yes, incredibly intelligent atheists, but equally, there are incredibly intelligent people who believe in God, many who are Christian. People like the atheist academic turned Christian, C.S. Lewis, or the University of Oxford uh, mathematician, John Lennox, or the former head of the Human Genome Project, Francis Collins. But even though this storyline isn't true, it's very popular. Often the storyline runs like this. Us believers need to catch up to society. We're behind the times. We're out of touch and, quite frankly, we're unintelligent. And the remedy is to stop believing in God, or at the very least, to bring our morality into line with the 21st century idea of morality. And it presents a real challenge to us. And one way that we're tempted to face this challenge is by accepting this storyline and thinking that we do need to catch up. We do need to catch up to the rest of the world by getting rid of what looks foolish and adding in what looks wise. And that's what some of us do. We jettison things that our world doesn't like, all those things that the world laughs at or finds unpalatable, we abandon. And we start trying to conform our storyline according to the world's storyline instead of conforming it to God's. It's actually exactly what one atheist comedian suggests that we do, Tom Ballard. He advises us to do this, he says to religious people, you need to see the teachings in the books and run them through your own moral processing. You bring your values to the Bible and you weigh the teachings against that internal ethical code. But let's be honest, a form of Christianity that attempts to please both the world and God fails on both counts. It doesn't please God. And in the end, it has absolutely nothing to offer the world. And from God's point of view, it's not wisdom, it's foolishness. Look again at Ephesians 5, verse 15, where we saw this. Paul writes, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. From God's point of view, pandering to what our world wants, it's not wisdom. What our world wants is so fickle, it it changes from generation to generation, what's right and what's wrong. Our world wants to claim the moral high ground, but in the end, it actually has no solid, absolute logical basis on which to rest its morality. Without God... An internal, personal, ethic, ethical code is really just preference. But for us who've seen that there really is a God and that He's made Himself clear in Jesus, for us who've seen that He's on our side, having seen that, wisdom can only be to let go of what we want, to let go of our preference and to find out what God wants. Today, we're going to see some things that our world tells us are foolish and and things that we should throw off. But either God knows what He's talking about or He doesn't. Wisdom for us is not picking or choosing what we do and don't like. Wisdom is throwing ourselves in completely. Wisdom is carefully walking the, the way that God wants us to. And this brings us to our first point. Wisdom is being filled with the Spirit. Look at verse 18. Paul writes, Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Instead of being under the influence of alcohol, we're to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Drunkenness necessarily means that you lose self-control. And drunkenness risks throwing away a friendship, or a marriage, or or it risks even throwing away life itself. The Holy Spirit leads us to walk in wisdom, which means that He takes us in the complete opposite direction. He leads us to self-control. Paul wrote just before that wisdom for us is to understand the Lord's will. Now, in one sense, that's easy. The Holy Spirit has given us Scripture and, and the Holy Spirit helps us to understand it but what's hard is figuring out what this looks like in practice on the ground. Now, it's, it's clear here, for example, that God doesn't want us to get drunk but what that looks like on the ground is not always so clear to figure out. For some people, it will mean not drinking at all. I was watching Julia Zemiro's show Home Delivery the other day with Colin Hay from the band that used to be around Men at Work and Colin struggled with alcohol in the, in the 80s and 90s and he lives over in America now and he was saying when he comes back to Australia he finds it really hard because people are always trying to get him to have a drink but he knows he just can't go there anymore. For some of us, wisdom on the ground means taking the same path as him and not drinking at all. Wisdom, for others, might mean just having one because we weigh 50 kilos and that's one makes us start to lose self-control. For others, it might mean having a few drinks and we're fine. But the point is that alcohol is a gift from God and it's not for drunkenness. It's very easy to justify ourselves but it's foolishness that plays around with this and it's not what God wants for us. God wants us to go instead where the Holy Spirit is leading And Paul tells us five places that the Holy Spirit leads. We see four of them in verses 19 and 20. So he says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to our second point being filled with the spirit leads us to sing. Do you notice three and maybe four out of those five places that the Holy Spirit leads us have got some connection to singing. So one where to sing sorry one where to speak to one another with psalms, hymns and songs, two where to sing, three where to make music from our hearts, and four we're always to give thanks. Now, it might seem strange but the wise path path that the Holy Spirit leads us on is is a path where we're led to sing. Our Pentecostal brothers and sisters know this but I'm not sure that we know it in the same way that they do. Evangelicals like us used to know it. Charles Wesley was an Anglican minister who became a Christian at 37, amazingly that can happen, After that time, so he was 37, after that time he wrote over 8,000 songs in his life. Luther said this about music. Next to the Word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim the Word of God through music. He was a bit feisty at times. He also said this, a person who does not regard music as a marvellous creation of God must be a clodhopper indeed, and does not deserve to be called a human being. (laughs) Feels a little harsh. He should not be permitted to hear anything but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. (laughs) People sometimes think that singing in church is foolishness. Um, They 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 think it looks silly and it, it feels silly. But God is telling us here it's the opposite. Foolishness, for a Christian, is not following where the Holy Spirit is leading us to sing. Foolishness is not joining our hearts and our our minds in this. Now, people will say, it's just not our culture anymore. But I don't really buy that, because it's always been human nature to express ourselves and our emotions in singing. And if you go along to the cricket or a Coldplay concert, it, it seems perfectly normal. Why on earth would it be wise to sing at a Coldplay concert and not wise to sing to our God when we're here together? God has made us to sing and we are emotional beings. Music is that beautiful connection. Music in church should be that beautiful connection between deep meaning and deep emotion. This means, of course, our songs need to have great content and we need to join that great content with our real emotion. Now, you might be thinking, it's just not me. I just don't like doing it. But, like everything we've seen in the second half of Ephesians, the Holy Spirit leads leads us to see that it's not just about you or me or what we prefer. In fact, in this passage, we saw, as we sing, we actually speak to one another. At the same time as we sing to God, and as our hearts are made, making music to God, we are speaking to one another. It's like the external sound waves are, are for the benefit of those around us and the internal heart is for the benefit of God. Now, I was, I was thinking over my um, greater than two years now, I think that I've been here, and I, I don't think I have very often called us out on something. But I, I feel like I would not be doing us any favours if I didn't call us out on this at t and I think we've got a lot of growing to do in this area and there could be lots of reasons why it's kind of hard to sing in a school gym with the heaters blaring above you but I think it's more than that. I think we've got a lot of growing to do here. The way we sing speaks volumes to each other and the way we don't sing speaks volumes too. When we don't sing, what are we saying to each other? What are we saying to our kids who are watching us? Whether we mean to or not, what we're saying is, this is foolishness. Whereas God says, wisdom is to follow the Spirit's lead and to join our minds and our hearts as we join our voices together and sing. Well, the fifth place that Paul says the Holy Spirit leads us is quite different to what we might be expecting. Look at verse 21 with me. Paul says, and this is connected to being filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And this brings us to our third point. Being filled with the Spirit leads us to submit to one another. The idea of, of su- submitting is not at all valued in our society. We treat submission like it's a bad thing, even. And I think that's because we wrongly confuse it with being demeaned. And so, wisdom is actually seen in throwing off submission. This is fundamentally different to God's view of wisdom and it's actually completely different to how God wants us to relate in His new society, the Church. Generally, as a society, as Australian society and, and Western societies, we approach each other as independent individuals who, who hold on to our rights and, and we sort of interact with each other as independent individuals guarding and holding on to our rights. But we've seen over these last few weeks that in the church, God's established a new society that's based not on holding on to our rights, but instead it's based on Christ's example of giving up His rights, by giving Himself up for the sake of others. And the Holy Spirit leads us to follow in His footsteps. In the church, God's creating a people where everyone gives themselves to one another, And rather than holding on to individual rights, everybody takes the responsibility of seeking the best for all the others. God's wisdom here is completely different to our world's wisdom and it's beautiful. In God's wisdom, true submission really is a beautiful thing and never demeaning because Jesus, although fully equal to the Father, was happy to submit Himself. Himself. To the Father's will. And if God the Son can embrace submission, then so can we. Now from here in the passage, Paul goes on to explain some of the different ways that we're called to submit to one another. And he he gives three different, he talks about three different contexts. There's husbands and wives, there's parents and children, and then there's masters and slaves. Today, unfortunately, we only have time to briefly, really, uh, look at husbands and wives. We sort of did a little bit, children and parents with with the kids, hopefully another time we'll get to come back to this. But today we're just going to look at husband and wives. And here, don't you reckon that we've come to a part of the Bible that we're so tempted to just jettison? This is definitely, definitely one of those areas that we're told that where we're out of touch and out of date. Have a look at Ephesians 5.22 again. Wives, Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I've got three quick things to say before we look at this. And first, I think we need to admit that it's incredibly hard for us to engage with this fairly. The vast majority of us us here can't help but but read this through certain lenses that colour our vision. Most of us um, here have grown up in a world that's been impacted heavily by feminism and a lot of that impact has been great for us and and helpfully shaken up oppressive ideas and structures in our society But it means that it's incredibly difficult for us to read Paul fairly. We almost can't help but read Paul with with the lenses of feminism and postmodernism, And so it's virtually impossible for us to leave our suspicion behind, even for a moment, and give him a fair reading. But, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit leads us to realise that this isn't simply the words of Paul that we're reading here. This is the Holy Spirit bringing God's own word to us and we might be struggling and and we might have a lot of questions after today but they're questions worth asking and exploring. What we can't do is just chuck this away. The second quick thing worth saying though is that probably most of those things that jump into our minds when we read this are absolutely worth rejecting and Paul and God would detest them. It's right for us to jettison wrong ideas about what this is saying. This is not at all saying that husbands are superior. It's not at all saying that a husband should get what he wants. It's not at all giving any justification for any kind of controlling behaviour or manipulation. And to use this part of the Bible to justify any kind of abuse is to actually commit another kind of abuse, spiritual abuse. We're right to turn away from those things and in fact, it's our duty to turn away from them and if evil men use God's Word to justify demeaning or controlling or abusing their wives, it's our duty to call them out on it and to expose that for what it is, evil. Let me say right up front that the corruptions of this text, they're not just sickening to our modern sentiments, they're sickening to God. The third quick thing we're saying, though, is that nonetheless, what God has in mind here clashes with human thinking, clashes with human thinking, whether modern or ancient. For different reasons, what Paul writes here clashed with their thinking back then too. And even once we get rid of all the things that this is not saying, it's still confronting to our modern way of thinking. There's no way of getting around the fact that this is completely countercultural, But rather than run away from this clash of cultures, it's in this really difficult space that we get to see whether God's path really works or not. And whether it really is the most beautiful way. It's in this space that God's way actually stands out in complete contrast to the rest of the world. Having said those three things... The first thing that we need to notice about what, what's said here is nowhere is a husband ever told to require submission from his wife. In one sense, it's none of their business. It's between God and the wife. The husband has his own calling, and that gives him plenty to keep him occupied. Look at the lead that the husband is to take, look at the, the nature of his authority, if you like, in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present herself, her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The lead that the husband is to take as the head, is to love his wife in the same way Christ loved the church. The nature of his authority is to give himself up for his wife, just like Christ gave himself up for the church. He's to lead with a love that sacrifices himself in order to serve his wife. Think about the way that Jesus loved us. It wasn't an empty display of love, it was both costly and incredibly effective. It wasn't a half-hearted kind of token lip service to love, nor was it a grand but useless romantic gesture. It was a gruelling, bitter sacrifice that brought the church to true freedom, true liberation to reach our full potential as God's restored humanity. Jesus doesn't force us to be something we're not, He gives up himself so that we can finally be all that God intended us to be. And a husband, we read, is called to love his wife in the same kind of way. Not half-hearted, not with empty romantic gestures, not forcing his will on her, but with real sacrifice, he seeks to serve his wife, helping her as far as he's able to be fulfilled, free. And to be everything that God's made her to be. Look at verse 33 where Paul really brings together everything that he's saying here and, and summarizes it at the end of this section. This is, this is the heart of where the Holy Spirit's leading us. In verse 33, "...nevertheless each one of you must also love his own wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband." See that? The heart of a wife's submission In Paul's summary, is respect. And the word used for respect here is not not a kind of light or token respect, it's a deep kind of respect. And the heart of a husband's love here is loving his wife as being one with himself, which we didn't have time today to explore, unfortunately, but we will at another point. But this idea of oneness, it means considering her welfare to be his welfare, giving her his devotion and energy just as easily as he'd give it to himself, so that putting her first and and himself second is as natural as looking after himself. So how should we apply these things to our marriages today? Well, the first thing to say is that the principle doesn't change. The principle that we read there stays the same for all time. That is God's Word to us, that is the Holy Spirit speaking to us. It's where the Holy Spirit leads us. But the application of it does change in different times and in different cultures. We need to be a people, those of us who are believers, who follow the Holy Spirit's lead to put this principle into practice on the ground. And what that looks like may vary amongst us as well. Paul, you'll notice, doesn't give specifics here. In other parts of the Bible, you do kind of see some specific applications of this into their culture but we don't see that here and we don't have time today to fully think through what it might mean and really that's, that's a job for you to have the conversation with your husband and wife together and maybe some godly Christian friends as well. But let me finish with just a few thoughts. For us husbands, giving up our lives for our wives is something we're called to do day by day, moment by moment. And chances are that what this means may well be the opposite of what we're thinking. It doesn't mean autonomy or making decisions on behalf of your wife, doesn't mean putting your foot down, it means sacrificially leading our wives in every aspect of life, spiritually. Spiritually. And it means leading them in other ways too. So it means doing housework. It means listening to our wives and understanding our wives. It probably means knowing and loving our wives' friends as well. It means cooking, cleaning, washing, working to provide money, changing nappies, reading the Bible with the kids. It means all sorts of things. Luther's on fire today, so let me um, quote him again. Luther wrote that worldly wisdom makes us think like this. This is worldly wisdom, wisdom talking. Alas, must I rock the baby, wash its diapers, make its bed, smell its stench, stay up nights with it, take care of it when it cries, heal its rashes and sores, and on top of that, care for my wife, provide for her, labor at my trade, take care of this and take care of that, do this and do that, endure this and endure that, and whatever else of bitterness and drudgery married life involves, (laughs) why should I make such a prisoner of myself? That's worldly wisdom. But then Luther contrasts it with the Spirit's wisdom. What then does Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful and despised duties in the spirit and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. God, with all his angels and creatures, is smiling. Not because that father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. That was Luther writing 500 years ago. Not with a feminist mindset. But with a spirit filled mindset. And we are called to do exactly the same. Now, that's something for us men to be thinking through. It's a bit harder for me to comment on what submission should look like for wives today. But, like for husbands, it could well be the opposite to what we might think it means. It doesn't mean shrinking back, it doesn't mean being demure, being dominated, and not speaking your mind. It does mean showing deep respect, though, even to a flawed man, which means not mocking him or demeaning him when you're talking with your friends or your mother. It means arguing with strength, for sure, but still with respect. It means not patronising or mothering him. It means not respecting, disrespecting him in front of the kids. It means encouraging your husband's attempts at leading selflessly, even when they're not how you do it. And it means gently providing the space and encouragement for him to step up when he's not leading sacrificially. Figuring out this is not easy. Figuring out submission is not easy. But neither is loving sacrificially like Christ. And I I think the reality is that, that some of us are in terrible patterns in our marriages. Those are some of us who are married. And it takes an awful lot of work to change. But that's where the Spirit is leading us. And so if that's you, do something about it. Don't be afraid to seek help. Next week, we're we're going to see how Paul talks about the devil's schemes. And in my years of being a minister... I think one of the number one schemes of the devil is to make us try to keep things a secret. When there's a problem, sweep it under the carpet because we're either too ashamed to admit it or we're too selfish to address it. That's not us and it's not where the Holy Spirit leads us. Whenever I I do marriage prep with a couple, I talk to them and I, I try to get them to a point where they're willing to agree before they even get married That if one of them ever says, I think we need to get help in our marriage, the other person has already committed before they even got married, that they'll say, yes, let's do it. Husbands, this is one area where we should be leading. If you're struggling in your marriage, step up and get the help that's needed. Marriage is about giving yourself completely to the other person. John Stott writes about this, He says, the truth is that all self-sacrifice, although the way of service and the means to self-realisation, all self-sacrifice is also painful. But he goes on to say, the giving up of oneself to anybody is a recognition of the worth of the other. Now, to lose oneself that the other may find his or herself, that is the essence of the gospel of Christ." To lose oneself, that the other may find his or herself. That is the essence of the gospel of Christ. And that is the place where the Holy Spirit is leading us. Submit to one another. That's God's idea of wisdom. And it's beautiful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you see our nature so clearly... And just how fallen it is from the way that you've designed us originally to be. Lord, you've seen the way that instead of being other person focused, other person centered, our natural tendency now is to be completely independent, holding on to our rights. Lord, help us to see so clearly what Jesus has done for us in letting go of his rights for our sake, in dying on that cross that we might be made your people forgiven and shown your mercy. Help us to get such a clear picture of that, that we in turn would be willing to give up fighting for our rights and instead fight for the good of your people around us. Lord, we do it so imperfectly in this life and we ask your forgiveness for that and we thank you that no matter what, we are your children. But Lord, help us now to walk in the way of wisdom, in the way that the Spirit leads us. And Lord, in our marriages, help us to be selfless, help us to figure out what submission looks like in our time and our culture, and help us also to figure out what laying our lives looks down looks like. And Lord, give us the heart and the desire and to want to do this, uh, the heart that wants to sing your praise as we walk this path. And Lord, make our lives overflow with thanksgiving for your goodness to us.